Hi there, and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And today, a man who sits behind some of the world's most iconic podcasts, Eric Newsom. At National Public Radio, Eric developed some of NPR's most successful podcasts and then continued that track record over at Audible. Now he's the co-founder of Magnificent Noise, based in New York City. And in this conversation on the Storymakers Institute, I sit down with Eric to talk about how we're being tracked by the stories that we consume. We'll dive into the double-edged cultural sword of personalization, its impact on creativity, and how it panders to the way you think. If you'd like to hear the full episode, all you need to do is head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com, and become a paid subscriber today. I'm trying to think, uh, when I saw you last, what is it would have been in Sydney, or maybe it was Chicago or New York, I don't know, but it was it was a little while ago. It was either in Sydney, or it was in Kilfinnan, Ireland, one of the two. Oh, maybe that's what it was, actually. I love connections with people where you meet in different parts of the world. And, mm-hmm. and you're always, you know, that you can sort of connect up. I've got a couple of friends who I do that with. and um, Preferably spaces in which you don't belong. Neither of you actually belong there, but you're just kind of like arriving in that space. Arriving in that space together. And you're like, cool, let's, let's navigate this new space together. And what does that look like? It's, it's quite nice. It's quite nice. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, I was strolling online, and um, as we tend to stroll more often online than we do in real life, uh, and um, came across your thoughts and observations and wisdom and analysis on the way in which shows attract and the way in which what we consume, and maybe that's a term that we can kind of dissect, but the things that we uh, watch and listen, how much of what people experience as, as culture is being tracked uh, from, from your perspective and your experience, and then what is the impact of that? Uh, everything that could possibly be tracked is tracked, and sometimes in ways you don't even understand uh, as a consumer. For example, when you're using a, a smartphone and you're listening in any app, the makers of that app know if your device, if your screen is unlocked or if it's locked. Um, they know if your device is moving or stationary. They know all sorts of, of, of information about the state of this phone, not just the state of what's being played. So they have a, a ridiculous amount of data available to them. And I would argue way too much data. Um, and uh, like an example where that becomes useful is I remember when I was at Audible, we had a conversation as to whether we should put transcripts on the screen, like rolling by as things are playing. And then we lo- realized that 85% of people who are listening had their screen off. Like that doesn't seem like a not large enough group of people to create that feature. So we kind of let that go. That's a good use of data, right? When you're, when you're either trying to understand a problem that someone has, or you're trying to test your solution to see if it actually is a, solution to a problem. But I'd also argue that all this data either is way, way too much for people um, and gets used as a substitute for taste or for curatorial ambition or interest or ideas. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's, I think, to everyone's detriment. Um, I, I remember when um, internet radio first became a thing, my wife started listening to some service. I don't know what it was, probably gone for a million years. Uh, and it eventually, over time, became the Earth, Wind, and Fire channel, where all it played was Earth, Wind, and Fire, because that's what it was learning from my wife that she liked. 
And so it, it, and for a while, then it became just like the 70s and 80s kind of uh, soul music. And then it kind of kept, 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 as it was getting more data, it kept sharper and sharper in its analysis part. And it was just literally feeding her what she, what they thought it wanted and nothing else. And it was all based off of data, right? And, you know, I mentioned earlier about having all this data on the phone. When I was at Audible, you know, for many years in podcasting, we had no data. We just had a download number. That's all we knew about the audience was an X number of devices. We didn't even know if those downloads were being listened to. All we knew was that a download was happening. And so I go to Audible where they all of a sudden you have terabytes of data. And it was overwhelming to the point that uh, I I gave the challenge to uh, the analysts who worked with us and the data science team. I don't want all this. I want, find me the one or two pieces of information that matter. And let's just pay attention to that and nothing else. And so we, we did that. We kind of focused on what are those things. But the real thing I think is wrong with data and understanding culture and story is that when I'm telling a story or I'm experiencing something, it's an emotional interaction. And emotion is very hard to capture in a data set of things streaming over off of a phone. Emotional state, emotional reaction. You can get some proxies that you liked something because you're going to listen to more of it again. And so I, I often, when I talk to people about how to make decisions and looking at data, I often say, you know, there's a point at which you've got to put the data away. You just have to make decisions based off of what your understanding is of the person who's listening and the emotional relationship you want to have with them. And that is gold to me. And you can't data that. There's two things that are kind of going on here. There's the person who's and the team and the, the the network and so on who's making the work, and then there's the the audience. And I and I wonder if there was a kind of deeper depth of understanding of what that data is being kind of used for in this context. I wonder whether people might consider different choices or different platforms or or um, yeah, networks that perhaps are treating your data more responsibly. Are we kind of looking towards a future where that's something that's going to have to be considered? You know, I don't know. That's that's a really interesting question. I, I just know a couple of things. First off, a lot of the people who look who have all this data are not very smart. and don't know what they're looking for. And they're looking for data to tell them an answer. It's like why, why there's so much buzz around AI right now and not a lot of conversations around what AI is capable of doing and not capable of doing. And I think it was Seth Godin who said that AI is, is a real threat to mediocre, mediocre thinking and mediocre writing because that's what it's going to replace. But if you're talking about something that is like a beautiful piece of poetry or a beautiful story, um, that's going to be really, really hard for uh, data to, to answer or for AI to create because there's an emotional complexity that's simple to us as human beings because we interact emotionally all the time with other people. Um, I, you know, I, uh, if, if data could answer questions for us, um, we'd have answers. <laughs> we don't have a lot of answers for things, right? There's so many mysteries in life. And so we can't expect it to answer everything. Um, and I think that, uh, Part of responsible use of data is understanding how it's being used and misused and kind of regulating for that directly or indirectly or passively or actively. Um, and some of it is that it's eventually people are going to realize 
there are problems that data just isn't going to be able to answer well. And when you're looking at culture and you're looking at the expression of ideas and emotion and thought, there's there's a lot there that data is never going to fully answer for you. And you know, the best researchers are the ones who combine qualitative data and quantitative data, quantitative being data, zeros, ones, binary, objective, right? And then the qualitative is much more subjective of like, how do they feel about this? What are the problems they're experiencing? What are their anxieties or fears? And understanding that human element of it, which is, um, I think that, so there's a point where people are just going to realize there's only so much we're going to get out of data. Our ability to imagine what we can do with technology, both for good and bad, exceeds our ability to control it and always has and always will. And so I don't get too anxious about it because I feel we'll eventually catch up. Uh, um, That's a very optimistic way of looking at what could be a very big threat of that interim time between when figures out a use for something and our ability to control it. So, Well, I think that's pretty pretty obvious now with um, the the way in which – social media platforms are, are viewed in, in many respects. And there's a much more a sense of understanding of what's actually really going on here. Um, and it was interesting. You mentioned about um, your, your wife's experience of, of all of a sudden the, uh, the offering just kind of continues to narrow and narrow. And I guess that's, that's been replicated already. Like we know that that is a thing where all of a sudden the things that you observe and watch online all get sort of, you know, quite narrow and focused within your own particular lane of, of, of thinking. And, um, and, and I guess that's, um, that's going to be a, a, a challenge to be able to continue to find ways for audience to broaden the mind outside of the, 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 the current show that, you know, or the current sets of shows or mindsets that, um, that people have find themselves in and nothing, you know, there's no more um, relevant case than that than being in the US where there is this sense as an outsider of a much more sort of tribal entrenchment of, of, of certain particular ideas, depending on where you live and the side of the fence that you sit on politically. Sure. And, and well, I, um, I heard of a saying that I can't remember well enough and I shouldn't try to say it, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Uh, so someone once said something that if restaurants were run off of data, they would only serve mashed potatoes and peas, <laughs> right? And I, I think that you know, think about the choice you make for a restaurant, and and restaurants are great analog for for content and culture, cultural content for me, because restaurants I think are simply physical places that people can understand. And when you pick a restaurant, you're picking it based off a number of criteria. Sometimes it's the type of food. Is this like comfort food or is this like adventurous or like experiencing something new or, you know, what is, what is the vibe of the, just the food? And then the ambience, like I'm going with someone, I want to have a deep conversation. I don't want it to be too loud. I don't want it to be where, where a bunch of people are packed and all together. Or maybe I want the opposite. I'm going to place, I want to feel a vibe. And I just, you know, it can be loud. It can be people all over the place because I want to feel that energy. Like there's all sorts of choices that go into a restaurant, right? You can't data quantify all that. It's, it's a vibe. You put it out in the world through your food and the presentation and the service and the atmosphere of the room. Everything is part of that. And you're communicating so much with that. And the recipient gets it. That's why they choose to go there. And enough people go there to sustain that as a business. You could never quantify that with data, all of that. Maybe you could. I don't understand how that would be possible. And I don't understand what the point of it would be um, uh, to remove risk. 
because what is life without risk, right? Both as a as an expressor and someone receiving expression. You, know? you go see a movie; it's maybe funny, it may be terrible. You don't know, but you get to guess, and that guess is part of the joy. I mean, I, I I tried to have a conversation with my son, who's a young man, who's starting to get into music. He's like just just became a teenager, and um, I tried to express him how weird it was to not have all the world's music at your fingertips. And that feeling of walking into a record store, going through the bin, and finding that 12-inch remix you've been looking for for three years, and seeing it there, and that feeling. And he has no way to understand that at all, right? There's so There's a sense of loss about that in a way. Oh, a huge sense of loss about that in a way, right? But I'm sure there are elements of that in his world. Um, I don't know what they are, but he comes from a place of where everything is available all the time. And you lose your appreciation. You lose some of that romance. You definitely lose some of that emotion when you're in that environment. Mm. A recent Substack that you wrote was uh, along the lines, was a couple of months back, uh, along the lines of um, patience versus a feeling of a, a, a almost a kind of cultural requirement of an instant hit. And you were talking in the context of making great podcasts and, and how there's sort of a in a way, perhaps an expectation of falsehood, if you will, of of needing a great show right now and and needing needing that hit versus the the, the patience of building sort of something up in there. Since writing that, have you had additional thoughts on on that? Well, I think to, to expand on the idea a little bit, it's that you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in podcasting, which is the field I spend most of my time working in, there's this desire for something to be an instant hit. It has to you know break from the first day. Or it's really hard to justify financially, or you know the amount of effort you're putting into it. Um, and uh, I argue that many things that were are successful required patience to build up. And either you can invest to build something that takes patience over time, or you can buy somebody else's patience by buying something that is already exists. And you know, when Spotify buys Joe Rogan's podcast and pays two hundred million dollars for it. They're buying the decade of patience that Joe Rogan had in building that up, right? Mm. And they couldn't make that from scratch if they wanted to, but they could buy that one. And that's like buying his patience. And I, I, I see, but I see that principle of understanding the role patience plays and giving time for things to, to develop. And as recently as this week, I have a, I have two shows that have come out this spring. One had they both originally were planned to do ten episodes. And I t- tried to talk both of them into doing 20 episodes. I said, because we're just seeing it's taking so long to build new things from zero. One client said, no, I think we're going to stick at 10. And the other client said, we'll go to 20. We, we, we buy that logic. And the 21 actually just launched a couple weeks ago, so it's just starting. But the 10 episode client just finished their 10th episode. And on their 10th episode, they finally cracked uh, like a, what their goal had been for what the audience would be for this podcast. I'm like, and if you had done 20, you would have had 10 more. We could have been riding this level. It took you 10 episodes to build it up and you stopped. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the show was expensive, particularly or, or cost prohibitive to produce the extra episodes. It was like, if you really want to build something that's going to attract and keep people, you have to have the patience to invest in it over time. And, um, so I've seen that play out like every day in, in, in one way or another of having the, the, the patience to invest in something over time. It's almost quite radical in a way, 
when you think about it, it's it's sort of countercultural to 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 place patients at the not at the center of the work that you're trying to achieve, but but also you know as a as a sort of central tenet to a creative life. Or by giving yourself that space, you give yourself the permission to say what I'm doing isn't quite working, and I need to rethink part of it and reapproach it, or maybe I need to tear up the first draft and start over again. Now, if you really like, let's say you wanted to write a book. And you wrote a book, you wrote a draft of a book, and you're like, I got it done. Here it is. If you had the patience just to invest more time, you could have given yourself permission to like, those scenes don't work, that character's wrong, this should move here. Like there's all sorts of now patience can be taken too far. I'm one of the people who will work on something until it's taken away from me. Right. Mm. And I will just continue to refine and refine and refine. Because um uh there's a, a quote uh, uh that uh, poems are never finished, they are abandoned. And I think that <laughs> Podcasts are the same thing, you know, because you can continue to you just continue to refine and refine, and you never quite get it right. I was at a, I was giving a talk, uh, at a podcast conference earlier this year, and the guy who was starting off the session, it's okay. How many people here produce podcasts? And some of the people raised their hands, and then so how many of you have released a, an episode in the last six weeks or a month or whatever? And people raised their hand. How many people are really like where their podcast is that are satisfied with their podcast? About a third of people in the room raised their hand, and I was flummoxed. I've never liked anything I've ever made, <laughs> right? I've never been happy with it. That was actually the question you said. How many people here are happy with their podcast? About a third of the people raised their hand. I'm like, I've never been happy with anything, right? I just it just got taken away from me at some point and went out in the world, and other people saw it, and it was either great for them or it didn't work for them. But it's like it's never done. And it's never fully complete or articulated. And if you don't give yourself, if you don't have the patience in yourself as a creator, you don't allow yourself that space to say, you know, this is wrong and it's not right. And I can make it right if I give myself a little bit more space. And Mm -hmm. not enough people do that. Well, I think there's also an aspect of, well, there's two things I'd say to that. Firstly, uh, I reckon you as a story maker, you have to be pretty good at letting go. Um, And the second thing being prepared that you're only going to do 50% of the work anyway, because the other 50% is being done by the listener, right? So they're going to imbue all sorts of things into your show and your ideas that you might have put in there, but you might not have also put in there as well. And so you're going to have to kind of create space for that. So maybe if you're not happy with it, Maybe that's partly because you are not actually completely, you're not the whole here. You're only the half. That's, I think it's a fair way to look at it. I also, you know, I, when, in, in my approach to, to creating podcasts, there's a, we have a lot of processes and exercises we use so and so forth to really define something and make sure we have a very unified idea between the people working on it. What, uh, I don't know, can you hear the dog barking? I can go shut the door if you if you. Oh, take. yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah, what's the dog's name? Uh, well, that one's name is Edie. There's two of them. And she hates the, the mail, the post driver and the UPS guy. She, uh, she hates and the FedEx guy. She hates them all. It's universal. When, when, they, when they just, even when they just drive their truck down the street, they're not even stopping. She goes crazy. So, so, so yeah. So, um, uh, you know, we have a lot of exercises and we have a lot of, of, of ways we do things to define and clarify vision. Um, when we're starting off and, I, I said that one of my goals, someone asked me, why do you do all this? And like, I say, my goal is for our only real restriction to articulating this idea is being the limit of our skill and our imagination. You know, and, and it will never be perfect. 
but let's make it as good as we could possibly make it. Mm. I, I had a phone call this morning, with a guy who um, was very frustrated. He came to me. I can't remember how he came to me. I think a mutual friend. He's very frustrated that he couldn't uh, do a podcast idea that he was really interested in and couldn't find someone to buy it. Mm. I said, well, then that means that if you really want to do this, you have to find the version of it that you can make without someone buying, like that you can make on your own. And he was a little confused by this. Like, don't I need to sell this to someone? Like, don't ask people for permission to create. Just express your vision because you'll make yourself miserable if you have this great idea and you can't do it, right? But realize you're always going to have a version in your head, which if I have more resources or more time or another collaborator or whatever, it would be different. I don't know if necessarily better, but it would be different. And you should only be doing ideas that you feel so passionately about that you just wouldn't be able to sleep at night if you weren't doing something to move that idea forward. And so don't wait for permission to create. Find a way to create with what the resources you have. It may take a long time. It may not be quite what you wanted to do if you had more time or more resources, but there's a version of it you can do. So stop waiting for someone to give you permission to do it. Just do it. You know, I, I, you're probably in this position as well. I, I know a number of people who have gotten book contracts or record deals or a development deal from a movie studio or like they, they make it like, okay, wow, this is all going to be easy now. And I don't know if I've ever met any of them that were ultimately satisfied with what they, not, not a couple, but ultimately satisfied. Most people aren't because they realize, oh, that's, that's like an artificial threshold. There's still so much work yet to do. Right. And I don't, just even though I have the validation of getting the, the book contract or the record deal or the movie deal, like I, I, that work is not done. And it doesn't mean I'm going to be successful. It doesn't mean I'm going to make money off of it. Mm. Right. Well, it's the people hard. are going to like it either, for that matter. Yeah. 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 No one may, no one may care about this. <laughs> and, uh, and you may not become famous either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> How much do you think creation and content creation, which is a term I kind of despise on a principles level, um, but how much of that globally do you see as desire? Maybe it's two things, desire for fame or desire to be heard. Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full episode, all you need to do is head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com and become a paid subscriber today.